This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We have talked on this show a number of times over the years about free speech, freedom of expression. And the reason, just to explain why we come back to this now and again, the reason is because it is really important. It is really important. And quite honestly, it is a, I would call it a precious gift that we have been given that we too often take for granted. I'd go even further than that. I would suggest we have now people who are fighting to take this away. Not entirely. They would never say they want to take away free speech, at least not directly. They simply want to make sure that the speech that is free is the speech with which they agree. And if you disagree with them, well, they probably, that shouldn't be speech that's allowed because that could be offensive. But that's not free speech. And keep in mind, once we actually get to the point where we begin putting limits on, real limits, and it's gone, it's gone. This is not something that you pick and choose and it comes back and goes away. Look around other parts of the world where free speech has disappeared. It does not come back. So why am I bringing this up again? Well, McMaster Student Union was, well, a group from McMaster Student Union was hosting an event this week, ironically called Tolerating Intolerance. It was on campus the other day, except something happened. One of the panelists apparently couldn't tolerate one of the other panelists being there. And so he or she pulled out, said, I'm not doing it, which left a gap in the discussion, which was too big for it to carry on. There was no purpose anymore. So the event was either canceled or postponed. We'll see it may come up again. So why is this so relevant today? Well, it was just a couple weeks, three weeks, four weeks ago that McMaster passed a new freedom of expression policy that encourages and allows for free discussion, free discussion, pardon me, on campus, which was... To me, a surprise. It was a refreshingly open document, and I congratulated them for that. I was really shocked, but they came through, and they came up with a good policy. However, it seems that some have decided that if the school won't shut down unpopular or different points of view, I'll take my ball and go home myself, and we'll go that way. Ahadi Hayaz is a president of the group called Overcome the Gap, which was what who organized this event. He joins us now. Ahadi, thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, You, by the way, and I want to introduce you, you are in a lot of ways indirectly but directly responsible for this policy that McMaster has drawn Mm -hmm. up because your group has brought some controversial speakers onto campus in the past, including Jordan Peterson, which led to an overreaction, which led to a lot of discussion about this. Uh, you guys are in a lot of ways responsible for the school having to make this decision. Before we get into this, what do you think of the school's policy that they came up with about free expression? Well, first of all, I think you're being very generous saying that we are responsible. But I think, you know, as a student group that has brought on controversial speakers and that has faced, I think, significant backlash for doing so, specifically the Peterson event, it was pretty heartening for me. It was it was encouraging because it showed that, you know, McMaster, after the, you know, the events that took place with our Peterson event last year, um, really took a step back and decided to think about, you know, what do we value in terms of academic freedom and what do we think, you know, is appropriate in a university setting. And looking at the guidelines themselves, it seemed that, you know, these guidelines are very much, you know, in favor of having difficult discussions on campus and kind of providing a framework to do so in kind of a safe way. So when I read them, uh, I was a little bit surprised, but I was also very encouraged. Is that the sentiment, the general feeling you get around campus, that people share that view that they are encouraged by this, or are people upset that this is so free now? 
Well, I mean, obviously, um, it differs depending on what circles you're in. I know that a lot of my peers and a lot of people that I've discussed this with were very encouraged and they were very happy that the you know the university actually took a stand and did something. However, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there were actually protests about that exact you know the, the guidelines. I believe they were either scheduled for yesterday or today um, by a lot of people who are very much against them. And yeah, yeah, they're actually today. So. Um, there is a mixed sentiment, but from what I've seen to, in my subjective account, it seems to be more people are in favor of them. And did people reach out to you? Did you hear from people? I mean, again, knowing that you're kind of in the middle of this in a sense, did you hear directly from people either pro or con of this policy? Um, well, I have heard from people. A lot of them, you know, people who tend to reach out, especially after the Peterson event, are people who I think are very pro-free speech, and they're the ones who are kind of excited by the things that we've done and the things we've tried to do. Um, I have spoken to other groups that are, you know, less enthusiastic or who are (laughs) pretty much against them, but, um, you know, those discussions, in this case, revolved around our current event, and, you know, these things come out through those discussions as well. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Hadi Ayaz, who is the head of the McMaster Group Overcome the Gap, that has brought together or put together a number of speaking events on campus involving controversial speakers at times, including one that was supposed to go on this week called Tolerating Intolerance. Uh, that Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, Hadi, was any part of having this particular discussion a response to McMaster's new open, more free expression policy, or was this done before that? Well, um, you, know, when you're in, you know, when we go about the process of organizing these kind of events, it does take you know, a couple months. So we actually started putting it together before, the, the guidelines came out, but obviously that is something that I think created more discussion and we felt that you know would kind of create more interest for this event. So no, they weren't really related, but I think it was a bit of a happy coincidence. Do you, are, are you, now I believe that you probably, although I could be wrong, do you believe that it is important to hear other people's points of view? Are you, are you someone who would, who would staunchly say that I am open to hearing even views that I disagree with? Well, yes, absolutely. I think particularly on university, that is really the heart of the kind of discussions that need to happen. I think that it's very risky to find ourselves in an echo chamber, which, you know, just repeats the kind of views that we agree with, because that's not going to lead to, like, real learning and growth. So absolutely, I'm very open to hearing opposing points of view. And yet, we've often heard lately, we hear it a lot, that university wants to create comfortable spaces and safe spaces, and you shouldn't be challenged. You should never be offended. That's the the, the popular view now on university campuses, that you shouldn't have to hear things that you don't want to hear. Well, I think that's just an unfortunate phenomenon that we're seeing recently. But I think amongst both the students and faculty, there are a lot of people who do not feel that way, and I'm one of them. Do you hold the view, well, do you get the sense that many students on McMaster or other campuses believe they have a right, a right not to be offended? Well, certainly I think there are a substantial number of students. I wouldn't call it a majority, but it is a very vocal minority. And I think they're driving a lot of the the policies that we're seeing and a lot of the, you know, things like events getting shut down. All right, so let me say, and I'm not going to do it because we're on the air and I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of the CRTC, but let me say that I was to say something to you that was horribly offensive to you, okay? And I'm not going to do it because I'm a fan of yours as well. But let's say I said something to you that you found terrifically offensive. What is the appropriate response then? 
Well, I think that I would, first of all, ask you to clarify your viewpoint just to make sure that we're on the same page. And then I would try to respond to whatever you said, you know, based on my perspective. And if I was very offended, I might let you know that. I'd say, well, you know, Scott, what you said really offends me, and this is why. And, you know, what do you say to that? And I think that I would try to have the discussion as far as it takes. Now, perhaps we won't reach an agreement, but at least we've tried to understand each other's point of view. All right, and let me take it a step further. What if what I said was intentionally, like we disagree so strongly that I knew that what I was going to say was going to offend you, and I said it anyway. Should then, should I be shut down, or what is the response to what I said? Well, again, I don't think you should be shut down. I would try to have a, a discussion with you. Perhaps that discussion would not be productive, but I don't think we can really determine that without at least attempting it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't shut you down. So is that what this event, now again, this event stopped or was not able to go on because one at the Tolerating Intolerance event, one mm-hmm. of the panelists was not able to tolerate another panelist, and so it had to be pulled. Was that the goal, though? Was that the, was part of the goal here? I mean, when you have an event like this, some people are going to say some things that may offend other people. It's kind of a Petri dish almost for that to see yeah. what's going to happen when someone says something that you or I or they disagree with. Yeah, I think that's what the discussion was meant to be about. I mean, we had the, the Peterson event last year, and as you mentioned, it led to a lot of good change. Like, it started the discussion on freedom of speech in like on campus, and it arguably led to you know the passage of the, the recent free speech guidelines. But what we wanted to have this time was more of an actual panel, like actually have the event carry through, make it a civilized, balanced, you know, discussion with different perspectives. And I think invariably some of those perspectives were going to offend some people, but we wanted to have that discussion nonetheless. So what do we do then? If we have people on campus on both sides, and I'm not pretending for a second that one side is is pure as the driven snow here and the other side is is evil. That's not what this is. Mm-hmm. But how do we, whether it's on campus or elsewhere, convince people that it's okay to hear something with which you disagree, even if you vigorously disagree? How do we get to that point where people are back to being able to say, you know what, that really offends me, but I actually can get on with the rest of my life and it's not going to ruin my entire life? Well, you know, I wish I had an easy answer to that, but I think for me, and this is really why we wanted to have these kind of events to begin with, I think experience can lead to that. I think that if you kind of expose someone in an environment like a university to views that they vehemently disagree with or views that might even offend them and allow them to actually take those in and allow them to engage with the people who share those views, I think they'll find that, you know, nothing really happened. Or, you know, just by hearing someone's perspective, I wasn't harmed in any way. And perhaps I was able to understand them better. Or perhaps I was able to make them understand my side better. So I think that it just it has to be through experience. And if we keep pushing this narrative that these views will harm you, then people are going to be afraid and people are going to feel uncomfortable. So I think we have to fight that narrative by giving people an opportunity to experience it for themselves. Hadi, you are a wise and a bright man, and uh, listen, I applaud you for trying to do this, because uh, again, I don't think we're ever going to get through to everybody, but Hmm. the idea that we can hear someone's point of view that is different from ours, and it does not ruin us, and even if we are offended by it, you know, ducks have water go off their back. It's okay. You can walk away, and it's okay. I Listen, I applaud you for doing this, and and it's, uh, uh, the group is called Overcome the Gap. Uh, Keep it up. I really appreciate your time today. All right. Thanks for having me.
That is uh, Hadi Ayaz, who, again, overcome the gap. Look, you don't have to agree with his position. This is the whole point. You listening right now do not have to agree with my position. You don't have to agree with anything that I say. You can be offended by everything I say. That's fine. This is part of the free society and the free expression and the free speech. Because we disagree, you don't have to hate the person. You don't have to be offended to the point of being distracted by the person. It's a different point of view. I applaud Hadi for and, and the rest of the group for doing this. It's, uh, it's important that they keep it up. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. If all goes well, and I'm hoping and praying for everyone's sake listening that this is the case, but if all goes well, nobody listening is going to ever have to be involved with a jury. That would probably be, I think it's safe to say that, that would probably be the best case scenario. If you can avoid being in court... Nothing against lawyers or judges, but it's probably better for you if you can stay out of there, especially if it's a criminal thing. The federal government, in response to something that happened recently, is now bringing in new legislation to change some of the way juries are selected, or at least they're going to propose to do this. This follows the acquittal. You probably remember the story from a number of weeks ago. Saskatchewan farmer Gerald Stanley, who shot and killed an Indigenous man, he claimed it was by accident. Uh, Some people say it was a wrong decision. Some people say it was right. Regardless, it was a controversial verdict, no question. And this has led to arguments in some corners that the way juries are selected, there were no Indigenous people on the jury, Therefore, something must have been wrong. This did not represent the community. Well, the biggest part of, or at least one of the biggest parts of this change that the federal government is now bringing forward is going to be the elimination of peremptory challenges. Why does this matter? What is a peremptory challenge? Well, let me bring in Jamie Stevenson. She is a criminal lawyer and she is a past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. Jamie, thanks for doing this today. Not a problem, Scott. How are you? I'm great. Let's start right there for people who don't know, because there are a lot of people, thankfully, who have never set foot in a criminal courtroom. Those are people that I'm probably thinking are pretty happy about this. Um, What is a peremptory challenge? Why does this matter? A peremptory challenge with a jury selection is something that allows the lawyers, both the Crown and defense, to challenge the juror without any cause, meaning that the juror comes forward, The defense counsel has an opportunity to challenge. The Crown has an opportunity to challenge. And neither party has to give a reason for it. The only people who know the reason are the lawyer themselves and possibly the client. And upon or with what information would a lawyer or a Crown be basing that? Do they have a sheet in front of them giving all kinds of details or information about this person? Not a lot of information is provided. Usually, juries are selected on Mondays or if there's a holiday Monday on the Tuesday following. We are able to access the jury list or the panel list on the Friday before. The information that's provided to us is the name of the juror, the address of the juror, and their occupation. And that's the only information we're provided with. However, we do have an opportunity, especially with social media the way it is these days, to go on Mm. and search that juror. Right, which is very different than what it was was once upon a time. Absolutely. Uh, Is there value then beyond what critics would claim which is then, uh, critics would say that this is uh, a tool to purge the jury of people who might look visibly, uh, or racially, gender-wise, whatever else, like the victim and therefore might be sympathetic towards the victim. Is there something more to it than that? 
Well, really, I mean, the defense counsel are looking for, particularly if we're looking at somebody's social media, we're looking to see if there's anything obvious that shows an obvious bias that that person might have towards our client, towards that type of offense, toward, if they have some sort of a posting about having been a victim or having a family member who's been a victim. Uh, those are the things that we're looking for, and the Crown's probably looking for the opposite. As far as just a visual looking at the person and challenging because they're a visual minority, either by gender or by race, um, again, that's something that only the defense and the Crown know, but uh, generally speaking, uh, that's not uh, something that we're really particularly looking for because there are also challenges for cause which help us determine whether or not there's an innate bias. All right. So th- there are people that I think very honestly that you as a defense lawyer or Crowns as a, as a prosecutor do not want on a jury. I think that's not a, a secret. If you are defending a person abducting a child from a school, you probably don't want someone living next door or a teacher at that school or something like that. I mean, there are, there are, there are things that would be obvious uh, if, you're, if you're defending someone who's accused of dealing opioids that killed someone, you don't necessarily want someone who works in an emergency room dealing with opioid overdoses where the person would have the possibility then of a likelihood of being biased towards that person regardless of whether they were innocent or not. Exactly. And from a defense counsel perspective, we want to avoid any possible bias that we, we can. So we try to rule out those people. And that's why we, when we look at an occupation, like you just said, if someone works in a hospital and we're dealing with something that, like you said, an opioid overdose, and we can sort of glean from that employment that they may have had some experience with that, we're probably going to want to challenge that person. I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but do Crown attorneys want those people on the jury? Do they want people? Who, I mean, you're not going to say they want to be biased, but certainly they would not object if there was someone there who was more likely to convict. Right. And I think the, the second way that you said it, they're not going to object to that person. They're not necessarily going to seek out that person, but they're certainly not going to object to that person. There are also, and I, I've covered enough court cases uh, and talked to some, some defense lawyers over the years, there are professions that you probably don't love having in jury rooms. And, and I've heard people describe before, they don't really want people who are analytical or uh, you know, super leaders. They don't want someone who's going to turn into Henry Fonda and 12 Angry Men and sort of take over and s- create their own defense in the jury room. That's true. We want the, we want all of our jurors to come in with an open mind. We want them to listen to the instruction that the ju- that the judge gives at the end of the day, and we want them to listen to the evidence in an open and unbiased way. So you're absolutely right. People who have jobs that there's a there's a very good working theory that people who have jobs that are over analytical, uh, teachers are people that are often struck from juries. Uh, we don't want we don't want someone who is going to come in potentially with a predisposed opinion or an ability and a strength in persuading others to think in their way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Jamie Stevenson, past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association, about proposed new changes to the criminal justice system, specifically around juries and how juries are selected. This follows in the footsteps of that Saskatchewan killing, uh, the uh, not guilty verdict that many Indigenous people and others said, no, this was not, something was not right, at least they didn't think it was right. I'm not going to pass verdict on the trial or on the verdict. I wasn't there, but a lot of people said, no, something doesn't seem right. And Jamie, just to be clear, you mentioned just before the break, when we're getting rid, or if they do get rid of these preemptive, preemptive, preemptory 
uh, challenges. This doesn't mean that you will have no challenges, correct? As a defense lawyer, you can still weed people out if, as you question them, they are racist or they're whatever else. There's still going to be an ability to get rid of bad apples. That's correct. There is, there's also a provision that allows us to challenge with cause. And that's usually when a question is developed in advance that's approved by the judge that is asked of every jury member when they are selected to potentially become a member of our jury. And those deal with any uh, prejudice or bias towards, as again, we get to the type of offense, uh, any uh, racial bias or anything like that. That's what the challenge for cause is for. But to remember, this isn't like the United States where we stand up and ask a whole slew of questions. We only get to ask the question that has been approved previously by the judge, but it does assist with the bias issue. Could you not then, and when I say you, I don't mean you would never do this, but you as the broader you, could a defense lawyer not say, I don't really want, let's, let's say it was a victim who was of a certain race. I don't really want people of that race on the jury. I'll ask some questions and just challenge them, but really it's for that reason. I mean, could you not just hide it under that? This is sort of, which would make this law a PR thing more than anything? That would be difficult because the way that we would have to ask the question, again, the question has to be approved by the judge. And if the defense wants to ask the question, the Crown has an opportunity to provide submissions as to how the question is phrased. So the question is very specific and it has to be the exact same question asked to each jury member. So I would suggest that if the question was obvious something someone was trying a defense lawyer was trying to weed out a certain type or a certain uh, racial profile that a judge or crown uh, would certainly step in at that point Jamie there are people who listen to this and, and you know they they think okay we're you're allowed to have a jury of your peers that's what you're guaranteed when you're on trial but we don't want to have lawyers either on either side playing games we simply want to find out if the person was innocent or guilty So why do we even allow this? Why not just choose 12 people at random and say, that is the jury, those are your peers, there's no challenges, there's no getting rid of, that's your jury, go with it there. Why would that system not work? Well, I think the problem with that is you're not always, even if it's a random selection of individuals from the jury pool, it's not always a jury of your peers per se, depending on who your peers are. And that's where I think that the changes in the legislation that are being proposed and potentially getting rid of these peremptory challenges are not necessarily going to help because the problem really begins in the selection process of the jurors who are coming to court in the first place. That's really where the problem starts. So who, is there an official definition of what is your peer? Well, uh, that's the difficult part. Your peer, and there are also cases that have actually come out that say, There should be larger jury pools, for example, if the accused person, I know in cases where the accused person, the accused person is Indigenous, there is sometimes a larger jury pool requested so that there's a better chance of getting a jury of that individual's peers, because the more individuals that come forward as possible people who will be selected for the jury, the better chance you have of getting more Indigenous people on the jury. So let's use that example for a second. Let's say an Indigenous person was on trial for something who lived on a reserve and all of their peers were Indigenous, would by definition then, should the jury not entirely be made up of Indigenous people as opposed to someone who lives in a big city away from that because they have nothing in common? Well, theoretically, yes, again, it 
a broader community the jurors would come from because it's not just that they come from the reserve. They come from the broader community of the jurisdiction where the person is being charged. Well, there's one other part about this that I find a little bit tricky or a little bit confusing, and that is my understanding is that the law uh, guarantees that the accused is to be judged by a verdict, uh, by a, a jury of his or her peers, but there's nothing that I know of that says that the jury has to be the peers of the victim, which is, you know, unfortunate as it may be. That's what really started this. They said the victim was Indigenous, but there were no Indigenous people on the jury. Is there anything that says that the uh, that the victim is to be represented with their peers on a jury? There isn't, and that is po- possibly part of the problem as well. And there, it's interesting because the Crowns are guided by the Supreme Court of Canada, who uh, essentially has said that if it's obvious that the Crowns are using their peremptory challenges to essentially develop a jury of a certain race or a certain uh, background, then they can be challenged on that. But the case doesn't apply as equally to defense counsel. So Hmm. where the crowns are put to task, and that's because they're supposed to be representatives of uh, the Minister of Justice, so to speak, the defense counsel actually aren't put to task in the same way. Jamie Stevenson, defense lawyer and a past president of the Hamilton Criminal uh, Lawyers Association. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Scott. Take care. It's a really interesting topic. And you know when most people probably saw this for the first time? If you watched, if you're old enough to have watched the O.J. Simpson trial, do you remember they had special jury consultants coming on to try and weed out the people that they thought would either be sympathetic or not sympathetic or black or white? I mean, that was a big part of this. Race was a huge part of that trial. That's kind of where we, a lot of people first would become aware of this. But this is, a, this is going to be a, an interesting one because, again, no one is promised that the jury is representative of the peers of the victim. Maybe it should be. That's what seems to be changing this, but that's not actually in the law. That may be coming as well. Who knows? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. A little island off Vancouver called Calvert Island. And apparently, archaeologists have found the oldest human footprints in North America in this island. They are etched in clay, I guess. They were two adults and a child walking barefoot on clay. And they found these, during an excavation, they found these um, these footprints. And uh, anyway, it's making news now because, you know... Well, every time one of these things happens, it's like, oh, now we know the oldest people or the back furthest people were here. Anyway, it got me thinking. It got me thinking. I, I, sorry for laughing at this. And if my father is listening, he's going to cringe because he hates this story. Nonetheless, uh, the idea, I hope that 13,000 years from now, they find one of my footprints <laughs> in clay because when I was about two and a half, I had a little accident had a couple toes cut off, little lawnmower accident. And when I walk on the beach now, <laughs> I leave some of the oddest footprints, just three toes walking along. And I just am praying that somewhere down the road, archaeologists are going to discover a set of my footprints with three toes. This will throw the entire scientific community into a tizzy 
Because, you know, we base everything now. We find a skull from whatever. And we go, oh, they must, all the people back at that time must have been this. Oh, his jaw is elongated. Oh, the people looked like, you know, this, that. This person, well, they've got this type of footprint. I would I would find it the funniest gag ever if 13,000 years from now, Ben, scientists dig up a clay pit and they find my footprint and suddenly... Reams, teams of archaeologists are studying this strange version of modern man who walked the planet 13,000 years ago who only had three toes. They hadn't fully developed yet into real, whatever, homo sapien. I, I guess I'm sort of cutting myself short here by saying I haven't developed into a real person. But I, you know, could you, I wonder how many of these, these discoveries that we've had over the years, that there could be a person who maybe had a slight different skull shape or birth defect or accident or something else. And we have built our entire science around this because how in the world are we ever going to know otherwise? Because there's not, you know, a storehouse of bodies. They find a bone here and a bone there and a footprint here and a footprint there. I think this would be the funniest thing ever. You imagine there would be textbooks written about this footprint. Oh, we've made a huge discovery now. The three-toed man walked the earth in 2018. Blew all of our expectations and all the knowledge we had out of the water. We all thought that it was five-toed people, but no, they were all walking around with three toes. What happened? What became what Ben, can you this is this is the kind of thing that could entirely change the course of history if I could somehow just implant my foot into a bed of clay and make sure that 10,000 years from now or so it was found. If you were able to do something like this... Which would be brilliant. It would be amazing. Maybe you should do it in something like concrete, and then just bury it somewhere, and that way you know. Like, concrete, it, it stays around for quite a while. You think it could... I mean, do you think it's possible to find someplace... Could you, could you set a trap for them? Could you actually, like, do it as a gag and dig down enough and then backfill it, but point someone towards it. I, I'm I'm just looking at this thinking there would be departments of McMaster University set up to study my footprint with no understanding of why this was what it was. See, this is why I... And I've got big feet as well. So now they're, oh, maybe this was Sasquatch. Maybe this was an early version of Sasquatch. Well, I think we just solved the, the whole conundrum. It's not a conspiracy. It's a radio host. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> you got to you got to do this thing right, but man, I was I heard Rick talking about this and it just made me laugh because I'm thinking how many of these things we don't know if a lot of these discoveries that they have allegedly made, we don't know if these are one-offs. This is why I really worry about the internet because if they look back in 13,000 years, Imagine finding some of the interesting videos you can find on well, YouTube. Well, that's all. We're going to be doing archaeology online. That's true in the in cyberspace. But of all the things, though, that we found, like you go to a museum and they say, well, the uh, Piltdown Man, I mean, whatever, uh, was five feet tall. How do we know that wasn't just a really short Piltdown Man? How do we know? We, For all we know, they could have all been eight feet tall and this was the one who happened to be really short or vice versa. Oh, they were all seven foot tall giants. Maybe that guy had a pituitary problem. We just don't know anything about it. I'm, I am, 
I am trying now to figure out how I can put my stick in the spokes of the bike of science. See if I can just shake it all up just by walking along a clay pit in bare feet with my three toes and see if it's possible to completely upend the scientific community. I think it would be hilarious. So and just sitting on the sidelines laughing. Is this your like public confession to no longer wear shoes or something? Oh, that would be good too. Except in the winter. But again, in the snow, people, what, what was that? What kind of creature just walked by here? I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm going to figure out a way to do this. And if we, and it's our secret. Everybody listening, if they suddenly announce that they've discovered a three-toed man who was believed to be about six foot five, who walked the earth, we don't know when, just keep the chuckle to yourself, but we'll know what it was. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. It is time to bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH with his special intro music. The only guest we have on the show who gets special intro music. Sir, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, good good to hear you. Good to hear the good music. Oh, you, you sound like you are uh, dying a slow death over there. Yeah, sorry, it, just, it, just, it got me there. Just okay. <laughs> you are very very emotional by Snoop Dogg. <laughs> All good. All good. Uh, by the way, I forgot to give the quiz question. So uh, since it's sports, it's opening day in the baseball season today. I thought it would be an appropriate time to have a baseball question. So I'm going to throw everyone, pardon the pun, a softball. Here is today's quiz question. Bubba, don't yell the answer because I know you know this one. Only one player who's been inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame at Cooperstown is wearing a Blue Jays cap on his plaque. Who is the one player, if you go there, who is wearing a Blue Jays cap? The one baseball Hall of Fame inductee who went in as a Blue Jay. Who is that? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. That is the number to call. Ben will happily take your guess tonight if you know that one. Back to Bubba O'Neill. Uh, sir, they got um, Blue Jays played already today, and uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. They looked uh, like the New York Yankees' little brothers. Well, I think we're going to see most of that this season, and uh, and quite honestly, what the Yankees have put together. And, and you know what? i got to give credit to, to the general manager, Cashman, there. Uh, this is everything that they've wanted, and for the first time in you know in a long, long time for the New York Yankees, they've rebuilt their team sort of what we'll say the right way, and not for you know just buying free agent after free agent. They have put together a good farm system. Uh, the basis, the base of their team is good, and now they can go out and add the right touches. And when you add a Gene Carlos Stanton. What like they've done the National League MVP, 59 home runs last season, two today, you know, one in his first at bat, you know, against a very good pitcher in Jay Happ, uh, with and he's surrounded by Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, and and I mean you're looking at a powerful, powerful lineup that could score six runs almost every game. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton, by the way, who was with the Miami Marlins for the last few years one of the best players in baseball, is currently on pace for 324 home runs this season and 648 RBI, which will eclipse the number of teams. Um, leaving the Yankees aside for a minute, I, I'm, I've been trying really hard. Most people around here, there are some Yankees fans, most people around here would identify with the Blue Jays more. I've been trying hard, but Baba, I cannot find the optimism about this season. I can't find the way to convince myself that this team is going to be competitive. 
Well, I don't. You know what? I think they're aiming to be competitive, and that's a, that's a broad word I'm going to use there because one, you're in the American League East, and uh, you know, I just went on and on about the Yankees, but you know, the Red Sox are going to be very, very close with them in terms of contention for the American League East title. And if not, if either one of those teams don't win the East, they have to be considered one of the top teams for the you know one of the two wild card spots in the American League. So. The, you, the Jays are already behind the, the eight ball. They're coming off, what, a 79-win season? Uh, and they have and, to play each of those teams 18 times this absolutely. year. Absolutely. Or 19, so, whatever it is. Yeah, so th- that that's not that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> so the Jays, though, I will say, if you're a Jays fan, I think in the deepest of your hearts, you know that the run in 2015 and 2016 are history. And that many parts of that team that being Jose Bautista, that being Edwin Encarnacion, and quite possibly Josh Donaldson will not be a Blue Jay come September. So I think if you're the wise Blue Jay fan, you know that this team right now is setting up for what I believe to be 2020. And that's when we're going to see Bo Bichette. That's when we're going to see Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who really warmed the hearts of everyone this week with that walk-off home run in Montreal for many different reasons, you know, including the fact that he did it the big O and the fact that he did it, you know, where his brother, where his, sorry, where his father hit, you know, 100 and whatever, you know, 50 home runs. I think you're looking at that team, and you also still know that in 2020 you're still going to have Aaron Sanchez, and you're probably still going to have a Marcus Stroman. So. I think if you're honest with yourself, you know that this is a year just to be competitive and maybe you enjoy some wins and losses. By the way, can you say Edwin's last name again? Edwin Encarnacion. <laughs> you, got the, you got the good tongue roll go the Encarnacion. Yeah, you've, got, you've got the TV announcer voice for Encarnacion. Encarnacion. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, look, I, I will be, I, I was looking today on um, online to a whole bunch of places to find out what the predictions are for the Blue Jays. I have not been able to find anybody who has predicted them to finish higher than third in the AL East. A number that, have that, said... That's, that's, that's a surprise. A number of them fourth. No, everyone's got either Boston or New York first, and the other one second, or, and vice versa. And then a number of them have had the Jays to finish fourth. And I think what's going to happen, I hate to say this, because the last few years have been a lot of fun. It has been fun yep. to be able all summer to be talking. When you say, hey, just see the game, right. no one has to say, hey, what game? Everybody knows what you were talking about. That's a lot of fun. That's what makes baseball great because they play every night. But I think that we're going to get into June and this team is going to be swamped and you're going to start seeing guys getting traded. And next year is going to be Houston Astros about five years ago when they just stunk. They're going to bounce back with, like you say, in about 2020 or 2021, but I just think they're going to be rough for the next couple of years. You, you know what? I don't think they get to that 59-win level. I, I really don't. Maybe I think, not. 65? I, I, no, <laughs> I think they can be in that 75 to 82-win region. I, I really as long think, as the starters all stay healthy, or and, most of them. And you're right. And you're right. And I said that on tonight's newscast. There, is, there are so many ifs with this team. You know, and like, what are they going to get for Josh Donaldson when they trade him? Um, you know, as you said, Marcus Stroman, will he be healthy? I mean, he had a good year last year. Um, low ERA. I mean, we're in the three, low threes, you know, for our team that wasn't that good. Um, will the blister problem be healthy for Aaron Sanchez? Um, 
Jaime Garcia, a guy that, you know, we watch in the postseason with the St. Louis Cardinals be, you know, a number one guy. Will he provide that depth as the fifth starter? But you know what? How about some of these young kids? And I'm not going to go as far as Bichette and, and uh, Guerrero, but what about Teoscar Hernandez? Yeah, there's guys. There, there are guys coming through the system. There's no question about that. But right now, the problem you have if you're the Toronto Blue Jays for this year is that every single thing you say about them all has the caveat if something, something happens, if the starters stay healthy, yep. if the relievers stay healthy, if John Axford can throw strikes, if Josh Donaldson doesn't get hurt, if Troy Tulowitzki well, he's done. Uh, if, uh, d- uh, what's his name, um, uh, second baseman, uh, d- Travis, Devin no, Travis, Travis, if he cannot yeah. fall apart again, yeah. if Justin Smoke can come close to repeating what he sure. did last year, every single player on this roster right. has a giant if. And you know, there's, sorry. it's, no, but it's, it is way too much of a, uh, it seems so unlikely when you've got oh, well, that many absolutely. ifs for them all to come together. Absolutely, though, Scott. But you know what? You had a caliber, a, a world, I'm going to say this. They didn't win the World Series, but they had a team, especially one of the two years, that was a World Series caliber team. It didn't happen, but you've got to go back to the books now. And I think what these guys are doing, and that's Ross, Ross Atkins as the general manager, I think they're doing the right thing. And they're trying to desperately not to upset the Blue Jay fans because, let's be honest, they packed the place. They led the American League in attendance for three straight seasons. But the fans know that this is... If the fans are honest with themselves, they realize it's just not going to happen this year. But give them time. Um, for, I'm going to say this because I think it's the only... I know it's a different sport, but there is an equivalent in a sense. Is that the team didn't make the playoffs for a very long team a time. In fact, it was the longest in, in all the major four sports, that, and then they finally made the postseason. And now that run is over. And the Maple Leafs have proven that you can rebuild a team in this town. So if the team, if the fans are patient and let these guys do their thing, with the prospects that I see already, I think the potential is there to be a good team again. All right, so we'll be back talking about the Blue Jays again in about two years. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> All right, I got a few more minutes, and I want to get to this, which I uh, we heard today that Steve Nash apparently is going to be inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, which is a well earned, well deserved thing for him. Canada's best basketball player. I would, I, I can't think of anybody that would disagree with that. Mm-hmm. So here's my question: Leaving aside hockey players, because we've just got too deep and too rich a tradition of hockey in this country, other than hockey players. What Canadian can stand next to Steve Nash in team sports? doesn't have to be basketball. In any team sport, what Canadian athlete would you put on the same pedestal as Steve Nash as far as what he did and the level he played at? Well, and you're, put, and you're not including hockey players. No, you say, no because, I mean, yeah. look, Wayne Gretzky immediately yeah, yeah. wins that no. argument every time. Sure. Well, I think there's a baseball player that's playing in Cincinnati right now that, you I mean, obviously he's not leading them to a championship because... The Cincinnati Reds are not a very good team, but I, I think a superior ball player that I think in time is going to be the best 
Canadian ball player we have. Best play, yeah, because you. I mean, you can argue for pitcher. For I think Fergie Jenkins goes onto that pedestal. Well, he's a Hall of Famer, but absolutely. But uh, I mean, that's a guy that goes out every fifth day. But I'm yeah. talking about a guy that goes out there every single day. But just when you're putting together the Mount Rushmore of Canadian athletes, and you leave hockey out again because there's just it makes it way more complicated. I, I think that Steve Nash is on there as a very small list of the absolute best of the absolute best of Canada. Sure. How could how can you argue with that? He's a two-time NBA MVP as a and, six and, foot and one or those, six foot and two one of those guy. Years in one of those years defeated Shaquille O'Neal in one of his best years as a professional. Yeah, no, and he, and certainly in the basketball world, he's not all that fast. He never jumped that high, and he was six foot one or six foot two in a yep. sport where guys are six seven and six eight easily. Yeah. There's an awful, as I say, there's an awful lot when you look at Steve Nash, you go, I, I don't know how he did it, quite honestly, a lot of the time. You know how he did it, Scott? He did it with grit. He did it with grit. Grit and, and smarts. Died. Smarts. He had a good innate feel for the basketball. He understood the game, student of the game, and I think he had this unselfish attitude about him, about making players around him better. You know, I am always complimented by the, listening to American broadcasters and American basketball players, some of them great basketball players, that drool on about Steve Nash and his ability to run a court and be what we, you know, and we're losing this a little bit right now because the game has changed, but to be a true old-school facilitator, and that's a point guard. Right, the point guard that understands the game, that is a communicate, is really the second coach out there, or maybe even the first coach, and he runs the offense, and that's what's so good about Steve Nash. And quite honestly, had he been more selfish of a player, because he was a deadly shooter, and I think that's you always think you look at his assist numbers, but he was a deadly shooter. I, my fa- one of my favorite pictures from any Canadian athlete ever is the one where Steve Nash has just been, I think it was either his nose or his eye or something. Oh, anyway, no. his face his face had just been turned into applesauce. Yeah. And he kept playing, and he looked like he'd just gone three rounds with Mike Tyson. Yeah. And he kept playing, and I thought, you know, it, that is stereotypical, but that is so Canadian. Absolutely. That, you and know, you, you've got guys in the NHL who will block a shot with their mouth and not miss a shift. That's Steve Nash. You're going to take a flying elbow into the into the nose and bust your nose. And you don't miss a you don't miss a beat. That was that was all right. So quickly, we'll bring hockey back into it for a second. Though we already know, I think what the answer is going to be. We're going to build the Mount Rushmore now of Canadian athletes. You get one from each of the four major sports, and I'll let you use CFL or NFL for football. Who are the four Canadians who go up on that Mount Rushmore? Oh boy, oh man! But can we agree on Wayne Gretzky? I can. I mean, we definitely agree with Wayne Gretzky there. Uh, I'm going to go back a little bit here. I mean, I, just how could you not a, a, appreciate what Russ Jackson did? I'm not, I'm with you. Russ Jackson okay. would be my guy for the, the uh, unbelievable. And and you know, and and I, I I want to think of more modern day players, but you know, and obviously people that are older than myself and yourself, they know. But you go look back at tapes of that guy. What a ball throw! What a what a baller that guy. It's was. all see. Here's the thing: whenever you compare, the only way to compare athletes from different eras is relative to the athletes they were playing against. Because the guys who played in 1950 obviously are not going to be able, if you could somehow move them ahead in time, to compete with today's athletes, but that's not the comparison. It's how good were you against the people you were competing against. And when you do that, 
and you look at Russ Jackson at that point, I, 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 I'm with you. I don't see that that's much of an argument. No, All right, so we got basketball it. and we got baseball. Who are you? And is Steve Nash then our agreement that he's the basketball Absolutely, guy? Yeah, I think that's, that, that's hands down. So then you got, I would argue that you've probably got three choices then for baseball, although you may throw another name in. You got Fergie Jenkins, you got Joey Votto, or maybe you got Larry Walker. Is there well, another one? Yeah, I think right now, I think for me, if I were just going to throw someone up there, it would probably be Ferguson Jenkins for all he did for the game. Um, you know, a guy out of Chatham, Ontario. What a career he had. I mean, playing for one of the, you know, the iconic brands, one of the iconic teams in Major League Baseball, uh, the longevity that he had. Uh, we talk about the number of victories that he had. And, and, and really, I, mean, I know this is always tough for people to understand, but played the game when guys went nine innings. You know what I'm saying? Uh, well, and you know, and no you threw 150, 150 pitches. You know, 150 pitches, throwing 300 innings. I mean, that will never, we will never see that ever again. I mean, because it's just the game has become so specialized right now, and to have that kind of durability and put up the numbers that he did, it's hard not to to look at Ferguson Jenkins. And I know Larry Walker did an amazing things, and and yes. People will say he was robbed of the Lou Marsh trophy. Well, he was. Of Jacques Villeneuve. And, it's still a stupid and, choice. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't give a sports award to a car over a baseball it player. It was a car. Like someone's going to drive the car. Oh, it was a car. It was on autopilot most of the time. Oh, God. <laughs> Michael Schumacher. He just had to turn left. No, no, that's NASCAR. Stop that. <laughs> Don't say that. That's embarrassing. Don't but you know what's amazing about that list? So you got four, and, I, and we agree on, uh, and I would have had Fergie as well, so we agree on all four of them, which kind of stinks for radio. I wanted to argue with you, but I can't argue with you because I agree with you. Three of the four of those all are from within an hour of here. Isn't that crazy? We're that, in the hotbed. We are the hotbed. You know... It's it's not you're not wrong, and again, I I think that I don't know if it's just the population base, whatever. But you can't argue that Chatham is the population base. <laughs> that's where like you can't argue it. that Brantford is the population base. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's just like, it's remarkable how in the midst of you know like Joey Votto, yes, he's from Etobicoke. He's if you want to have Votto, but you know Steve Nash. Uh, Russ Jackson. I mean, it's a bigger city here, but the rest of them, it's you can't even argue. It's it's just a weird little thing how they pop up in the middle of nowhere and you find genius. Well, you're right. I mean, but you look at me you and know, I. We're just going out of getting out of province here, but you know, you're right. Even Steve Nash, Victoria, British Columbia. Yeah. Say what? <laughs> as a basketball, yeah, like uh, as a football player, sure. As a hockey player, yeah, maybe even as a soccer player, to some, which he is a good yes. soccer player. Yes, him and his brother. Yeah, well, crazy stuff. And you know what? And 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 in some time, and I I saw him play last night in this McDonald's uh, Invitational. <laughs> this is R.J. Barrett is something else from He's, Mississauga. Yeah, though Canada's basketball is going to be uh, set up because they've also got Hamilton's Shea Gilgis Alexander who's coming along. Yeah, who just played right. in Kentucky, and you still got young Andrew Wiggins is still a young guy, and you got a mm-hmm. bunch of guys. This will be. Uh, yeah, we're, you know, Canada's doing okay. We've got nothing to be ashamed of you in know, the world of sports right and, now. And just to stay local there, and I know, if I mean, in the, if, who's to say, maybe in the WNBA, look at uh, Kia Nurse. Kia Nurse was Kia just N- today chosen as the NCAA's Defensive Player of the Year. Like they, look at the pick of it. That's not a conference thing. It's not a team thing. Nope. That's NCAA Division One Basketball Defensive Player of the Year. And she can jack up some threes as well, too. Right here from Hamilton. Now, it, you know, I'm not taking anything away from Key and Nurse. It does help when you win most games 190 to 12. <laughs> but but the reason, part of the reason you do that is because you're such a good defensive player. 
Uh, hey, before we send you on your way for Easter weekend, Bubba, can you send us off with Edwin's last name again? <laughs> yeah, very nicely done. The first time I heard it, I thought, man, he does that so well. He said, there must be some Spanish in the Bubba background. Well, you know, yeah, I don't know what's in me. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great weekend, my friend. Thanks for doing this. Hey, always a pleasure, but thank you. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.